ETF Prime is hosted by Nature Racing, president of investment advisory firm, the ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with Vetify or any of its affiliates. Vetify's participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or indication by Vetify of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. Because commodities indices are more likely to represent the super cycles of yesteryear than today's new and emerging commodities regime, Newberger Berman's actively managed commodity strategy ETF seeks to transcend the limits of traditional indexing, offering both inflation insurance and an emphasis on the catalyst driving today's changing economy. Embrace the road ahead and learn more about NBCM at nb.com NBCM. An investor should consider NBCM's investment objectives, risks, fees, and expenses carefully before investing. This and other important information can be found in NBCM's prospectus, which you can obtain by calling 877-628-2583. All ETF products are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Please refer to the prospectus for a complete discussion of NBCM's principal risks. Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, joining me will be Meb Faber, co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management, who is now at nearly $2 billion in ETF assets. They've grown tremendously over the past several years. So we're actually going to discuss that growth and how Meb has approached the uh, ETF terror dome because he's not only survived, he's thrived in it, which isn't easy. So we'll talk about that. We'll take a look at their flagship ETF, the Cambria Shareholder Yield ETF, ticker SYLD. And then I also want to get Meb's thoughts on uh, current global stock market valuations, which is something I always like to do with Meb. So it should be a fantastic conversation. I'll also be joined this week by Todd Sohn, who's an ETF and technical strategist at Strategas. Now, Strategas does offer a uh, handful of ETFs, but they're a much larger shop, particularly on the uh, research side. And Todd heads up all of their ETF coverage there. I'll tell you, he's quickly become a uh, go-to resource for me. He's producing some of the best ETF research and charts out there. And this week, we're going to go through the 10 ETFs Todd is using to track market conditions in the second half of the year. I think you'll really enjoy this because this list isn't comprised of, you know, SPY and QQQ and those sorts of ETFs. Todd is digging much deeper into the ETF toolbox. So look forward to that. Now, to start this week, I have on the line with me, Dave Nodig, financial futurist at Vetify. And we're going to do something a little bit different. Uh, so I just mentioned I'm going to look ahead to the second half of the year with Todd Sohn. 
Well, Dave and I are going to look back on some of the biggest stories we've covered on ETF Prime over the past uh, couple of years or so and try to gauge where we're at on these in terms of investor interest. So I think all of these topics have had a lot of hype at one point or another. They all tie into ETFs in some way, shape, or form. So Dave's going to tell us where we're at in the uh, hype cycle on these and what might come next. So let's chat with Dave now. Now we're joined by the experts at Vetify, a new data analytics and thought leadership company that is transforming financial services from an industry to a community, one relationship at a time. They're not just telling you what positions they've got, they're telling you precisely what trades they've made. It's a little bit of a who's who of the corporate bond space. Dave, welcome back to the uh, podcast. I feel like we just chatted. <laughs> well, because we did, Nate. <laughs> hey, be honest, are you... Uh, relieved I'm not forcing you to talk Bitcoin ETFs this week? Well, I'm sure it's going to come up whether we want it to or not, but I, <laughs> I don't mind taking a little bit of a break. You know me uh, way too well. Um, so look, I'm not sure how well I just set up our conversation at the top there, but what we're going to do is go rapid fire uh, through a bunch of different topics. And you're going to tell us where you think we're at on each of these in terms of the uh, hype cycle, so to speak. I think this will make much more sense <laughs> once we actually get into it. So let me just start teeing up topics. And the first one I have for you is cannabis. And I'm starting with this one because our good friend Meb Faber is joining me this week. And of course, he has one of the best cannabis ETF ticker symbols out there in a toke. Right. The, I mean, is there a better one? I, there can't be a better one. Well, and the other thing, too, which I know you're aware of, the expense ratio on that is 420, 0.420%. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, look, this segment was all the rage uh, three or four years ago. We saw a bunch of ETF issuers jump in. But if you look now, boy, this category has been absolutely brutalized performance-wise over the past couple of, the, uh, of years. And so I feel like we're clearly at a uh, low point in the hype cycle. But where, where's your head at on cannabis right now? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people were very excited for this space uh, as, as it looked like legalization was going to be a big part of, say, a Biden administration. Obviously, that really hasn't happened. Uh, and, and I think, you know, those of us that were sort of pro-legalization are upset about that. But what it, the effect on investors has been institutional money is still not really showing up in this space. It really can't. And, and there's still so many hurdles to cross in terms of banking reform, in terms of multi-state operators, um, that this is a very difficult place to be an investor. I'm still, I think, generally long-term bullish on legalization, and I think we'll get there. But what's happened is the industry is already in the phase of consolidation uh, before we've even been able to get big money to really show up. And what that means is we've got a very fractured state-by-state -state system with a handful of large players who are predominantly uh, marketing agents. Right. That's really where the value has been is on branding, distribution and the parts that aren't that are agriculture, which tends not to be a particularly interesting sector of the economy to invest in. So it's a very tricky spot to find a big bull case to buy the existing public stocks. So this is one of those cases where I'm just not sure you can play it as well as you'd want to. What's amazing is if you look at this from a uh, an ETF perspective, I, I, I was checking this this morning. So the largest cannabis ETF right now is the advisor shares pure U.S. cannabis ETF with about $370 million in assets. But if you look at uh, MJ, which used to be the largest, 
that right now only has about 220 million, which is a little hard to believe because that thing was up over two and a half billion in early yep. 2021, 20, uh, right? But performance has just killed it. If you run performance since mid-February 2021, listen to this. MJ is down nearly 90 percent, 90 percent. So um, l- l- before we move on here, I mean, moving forward, is this all – and look, you, you know this is a crystal ball-free uh, you know, podcast, but is this, <laughs> is this all a legalization play moving forward? Or even if even if we get federal legalization, is that kind of like everybody's expecting it at some point, whether it's in two years, five years, whenever? Yeah, I think it is really a legalization play here. I think, you know, we had a a very obvious bubble cycle in the cannabis industry. Um, I think that that is now shaken out largely. I think that's actually healthy, right? You, I, I prefer to have a rational <laughs> corner of economy than another bubble that we have to chase. So, yeah, that performance obviously not only sapped the actual value of those things, but obviously soured investors on the whole space as well. So, uh, you know, it is an investable space, but it is a micro niche like some of the other ones we're going to talk about. All right. So uh, next topic I have is SPACs. And IPOs, which, again, this is absolutely, in my mind, a flashback to late 2020 and early 2021 uh, when we saw a number of SPAC-related ETFs come to market. Now, I think a number of those have uh, since closed. But if you look at something like the uh, SPAC and new issue ETF, so ticker SPCX, that's down about 25% since February 2021. Uh, The Renaissance IPO ETF, ticker IPO, that's down about 60% since February 2021. So what's your current your uh, current thinking around SPACs and uh, IPOs? Well, I, in general, I'm not a huge fan of IPOs and SPACs as an investment target, right? Because there's no particular reason that you would expect all IPOs to look a certain way and provide a certain kind of thing in your long-term portfolio performance. So I'm not a huge fan of this in general. Yes, there is that that thought about, you know, if you invest early and you can ride out that first year, you get a sort of a, a better than market return. I know the math is there and there are reasons for it. Uh, but the reality of the current market has been that the companies that came public in the previous three to four years have not done super well. So these funds haven't performed super well. I, I don't think that that means that we can never invest in IPOs again. I actually think that we're we're in the middle of a bit of a renaissance in IPOs. Uh, if you think about it, one of the big challenges that the economy faces is a rising rate environment. Those rising rates hit small companies that are out there, you know, taking down loans with their venture capitalists as well. Uh, the IPO market is, you know, the ultimate exit that doesn't require a bank, uh, and therefore I think we'll see that window used more and more over the coming years rather than less and less. I think the SPAC bubble is largely gone. uh, And I think that rising rates increase financing costs in all of these kinds of capital market manipulations. Uh, And so I think we're going to see traditional IPOs really coming back to the front. Yeah, that's an interesting take. I I like that. That makes sense intuitively. I guess the wild card there will be what the environment looks like here, you know, the back half of the year moving to 2024, what happens in the economy, what do the markets look like, you know, maybe right now is a good time if you need to raise some cash to, to, to go to market. But I, I wonder that, what that'll that look like going in six to a bank months. and asking for a loan. <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> um, all right. Another throwback to 2021. I want to ask you about social investing. And I think the poster child for this is the uh, Vanex Social Sentiment ETF ticker Buzz. I'm sure you remember. Uh, yeah, Dave Portnoy, right? Remember him out there Dave touting Portnoy's that? Uh, but look, we also had ETFs like the uh, 
Gerber uh, Kawasaki ETF with Ross Gerber, ticker GK. Even last year, there was that uh, Meet Kevin Pricing Power ETF that rolled out, ticker PP. Uh, we'll, we'll leave it at that. But um, the idea here is that individuals with large social media followings could leverage that and use the ETF wrapper to try to monetize those followings. And I'll, I'll be honest, I know we, we talked about this several times on the podcast, but I did think we would see more of this. But now I'm wondering if this was uh, more of a frothy market phenomenon. So what, what, what do you think about social investing, particularly as it well, pertains to the ETF wrapper? Well, as much as, as I think both of us would like to chuckle and move on here, I feel like if we're going to talk about the fact that cannabis is, you know, tanked and is way behind the market, we have to acknowledge that like Buzz and PP, as much as I don't want to say that out loud, have actually crushed. Like over the last year, PP is up 36% versus the S&P 500 is up, what, 12 and a half? Uh, and Buzz is up 26, 28%, right? So like you can't argue with the fact that they're sort of doing what they said they were going to do. Uh, I still think this is a slightly silly way to think about your investing profile. I understand the mathematics behind it. I get why people are interested in this. Uh, but but I don't think this is a, a recipe for long-term outperformance. I think this is catching moments in time. Uh, and certainly, you know, some of the stocks that are in buzz, uh, you know, over really since the last couple of months have really caught fire. I, I think a broader question is, are we actually moving into some sort of a post-social media world uh, with the sort of demise of Twitter and the rise of threads and blue sky, et cetera, et cetera, uh, it feels very frothy to me. It seems like a very terrible time to try to guess whether or not social media-based investing is going to work or not. It's worked over the last three to six months. It certainly didn't before that. So I, I see this as largely a gimmick still uh, and have a hard time getting behind it. The other challenge here, and again, I know we've talked about this. You mentioned an ETF like PP being up 36% since its inception. That's well outperforming the S&P 500, some, something like 25 points of outperformance. Yeah. But that ETF only has about 40 million in assets, which I, I would say is a little surprising just given that outperformance. But I, I always come back to financial advisors, and I think there's what's called, I, I, I don't know, client statement risk here. And that, yeah, right, do you want a meet Kevin ETF showing up on your client statement? And we, and we can debate, well, is that a good reason, you know, to own something or not? But I think it's real. Now, like the Ross Gerber ETF. Real. And this is, Let's be clear. Like this is not like you're buying an S and P 500 fund that happens to be branded by a social media influencer. This is all strategy run by somebody who is not actually an investing professional that we would normally associate with. So yeah, not only is there client risk that you'd have to explain it, but you'd have to explain why, even if there wasn't statement risk. So I, I think it's very hard to justify this as a sort of de novo, I want to go make an investment decision. If you don't already have some connection with this guy and this strategy, there's no reason in the world this would show up on your list. And look, we've got examples throughout the market of high performing strategies that are not gathering assets. That's a good thing. That means people are paying attention. Yeah. The, the, the one thing I will say, like with the uh, Ross Gerber ETF and, you know, say what you want about the actual investment strategy or approach itself. But but the reason he said he launches that makes a lot of sense to me, which is that if there are prospective clients of his investment strategy, but they don't need the full service that his wealth advisory firm offers, then they can access that investment strategy through the ETF. Like, I, I get oh, that, sure. right? So yeah, that is a distribution channel or vehicle makes sense to me. But 
you know, some of these other ones don't. But yeah, it, it looks to me like as a whole, this whole social investing phenomenon, it, you know, I don't want to say it's dead, but I think it's going to be challenged moving forward. Yeah, and I think there's a very big difference between the idea of tracking social media to get investment ideas and social media influencers hawking ETFs, right? They're they're sort of related, but not necessarily. All right, let's see here. Um, next, I'll go direct indexing, which I think is a favorite topic of both of ours over the past yep. uh, several years. So this is obviously much different than SPACs and, and social investing. There's no question this is here to stay. Um, but I will say, from my perspective, things have seemed much quieter on this front, just in terms of the the hype around direct indexing. So wh- where do you think we're at on direct indexing? So, uh, you know, I think it's easy to dismiss something simply because we're not paying a lot of attention to it. There's not a lot of big new investments. There's not a lot of big, you know, flashy new announcements in the DI space. Most advisors who want access to a DI solution can get one now. They're sort of endemic on most platforms, whether you're in Orion or you're using Canvas or, uh, you know, Parametric or Perio. There's so many ways to access that the chances are, if you're an advisor, you have access to a direct indexing platform for your clients if you want one. And the numbers aren't terrible. PwC just dropped their big asset management report and had a couple stats I thought were good. There's about like $600 billion right now in DI platforms. That's not nothing. That's a decent amount of money. They're projecting that that's going to jump up to about $1.7 trillion over the next five years. Again, that's a pretty healthy chunk of money. It's not killing the ETF market. But it means that there are people finding appropriate use cases for the tech. And I think more importantly, in this last survey, they said 40% of institutions plan on moving assets to customized index platforms over the next five years. So there's a wave of folks doing this kind of custom index work. How deep down the stack it goes to, you know, $100,000 accounts? No, I don't think that we're in a mass retail adoption model. But then again, the robo-market is pretty on fire. So again, in the same report, PwC was saying that robos are going to go from the $2.5 trillion they have now, which is a big number, to about $6 trillion in five years. So like, that's clearly here to stay, and it's clearly growing. I think all that's really well said and aligns with, I think, my overall sentiment um, on direct indexing. I actually visited with uh, Charles Schwab's DJ Tierney on the podcast a few weeks ago, and they're just continuing to quietly build out their yep. Schwab personalized indexing platform, right? They, they're, they're adding more bells and whistles. They're making it more intuitive. I believe they only offer like four indexes right now that can be customized. So it's still very early. But I, I guess the point is Schwab is clearly putting resources into this. And I think to what you were saying, this will be a toolbox or, or a tool in the toolbox of most advisors. Now, is this an ETF killer that people were, you know, some of the headlines we saw several years ago? I, I, I think of no. course not, right? But um, no, th- for people with a really specific use case, either a really strong values tilt that's hard to implement with packaged product, or the the real killer app is not tax loss harvesting; it's single stock position management, right? It's folks, yep. it's the executive at GE, and she's got uh, you know twenty eight percent of her wealth tied up in ISOs for the next twenty years. Managing that is hard without the ability to customize the rest of the portfolio. Yeah, there's just a lot of quiet building going on behind the scenes, and these tools are going to get better and better. Um, Mm -hmm. Okay, a few other topics here. Uh, This one's uh, another throwback. I I think you'll like this space. So, like, remember the uh, Procure Space ETF ticker UFO? 
And then uh, ARK launched a space ETF, ticker ARKX. There was a ton of hype around this. Again, same time period, back in early 2021. I think it's been pretty quiet since then. So I'm, I'm just very curious to hear what you think about the space theme. Yeah, I mean, the hype cycle's pretty much over. That's fine. Like, we're now we're sort of routinely SpaceX is putting stuff up and uh, now we're sending folks to the moon again. And like, there's exciting. I mean, I'm a nerd, so I'm excited about the things going on in the space industry. Uh, I don't think there's any particular reason to believe it's going to so massively outperform uh, as a block. I, I do think that there are opportunities in the space. And if you go, if you dig into the the research and stuff like ARC in particular, of course, is, publishes a ton of great research on this. So does Pure. And, you know, there there's some compelling stories in there about how uh, things like satellites are changing logistics and the Internet, you know, satellite Internet, and et cetera, et cetera. There's plenty of stories there. I'm not sure any of them make me think that it's worth reconfiguring your portfolio to make a significant overweight. I think this is one of those segments where if you're personally interested in it and you're personally enthused about it, it's a great way to pay attention. I, I will tell you, again, I was checking assets on some of these ETFs this morning. That ARC Space Exploration and Innovation ETF, it does have nearly $300 million in it. Which yeah, I, these are real funds. Yeah, yeah, that was a little surprising. But if you look at performance, it's down 26% since its inception in March 2021. UFO is down uh, nearly 37% from its June 2021 high. So, uh, you know, clearly I think performance is, as with most, most things, is impacting the hype cycle here. But uh, again, yeah, and it's been a rough, it's been a rough year. A lot of the holdings in those companies and in those funds are, you know, flat to down on the last 12 months. So it's been a tough time to be excited about it. All right. On the other hand, a more recent theme with a, a lot of hype uh, that, that has been working is, of course, artificial intelligence, right? We saw an enormous hype cycle earlier earlier this year. I feel like that's faded a little bit, but it's still clearly a hot topic. And I know you recently wrote uh, a full deep dive into this. So that's titled Chat GPT for Finance, Promise and Peril. That's, of course, posted at ETFtrends.com. Everyone should go check that out. But what, what are your high-level thoughts on artificial intelligence right now? Um, look, I think it's going to have a substantial impact on the economy for the next for, forever. right? I, I think there is a bit of a phase shift happening. I think it is industry by industry how that's going to be uh, realized. Uh, a lot of it's going to happen in much more boring places than the public internet and chatbots. It's going to happen where it's been happening, which is in machine learning and automation and factory management and logistics and resource allocation, uh, running businesses, right? Those kinds of processes, which are much less interesting than asking ChatGPT about movies, uh, are actually where the economic impacts are going to happen. Uh, it's not, you know, newspaper reporters getting replaced by bot engines and stuff like that. That's just that's just sort of silly hype the stuff. Uh, but significant improvements in other forms of AI, not just generative chatbots, uh, are actually making really significant impacts on the economy. Now, again, we're you know we've been talking about a lot of narrow issues like cannabis and space ETFs here. You can make that argument, I think, for some of what's going on in AI. I would say that this is a broader, more investable space than either something like space or cannabis. There are more companies involved. There are more pure plays involved. Uh, as it becomes more endemic as an issue, it, it's going to get harder and harder to tease out AI investing from just tech investing. 
right? Because right now, the biggest plays you would make would be things like Taiwan Semi and NVIDIA. Uh, and guess what? Those would be in the top of any tech ETF that you're buying as well. So I think this is one of those things where there's a narrow window where a handful of companies will be relatively pure plays. And then very quickly, this is just going to be, do you want to own IBM, Microsoft, and Alphabet? So if that's the case, how do you think that impacts the um, AI-related ETFs? And, and I'll stick specifically on the theme, right? You have two groups of AI ETFs. You have some that leverage AI as part of their investment process. I'm not talking about those. I'm talking about ETFs, maybe like the Round Hill Generative AI and Technology ETF, right? Ticker chat that's looking to invest in companies that are uh, developing AI tech and, and those sorts of things. I, I'm just curious, do you think that that's going to be a narrow space as well? I, I think that, um, I, I mean, I have, first of all, I want to caveat here. So Vetify runs some indexes that are behind some products in the space, THNQ and Robo. Um, so we Vetify has an indexing business that runs some of those. So I just want to make sure that folks understand that. I'm not trying to talk a book here. Um, I do think that the narrower you try to pin this theme down, the less investable it actually is. Mm -hmm. So if you're trying to make an investment that is solely focused on generative AI, it's going to be really narrow. Now, Roundhill's a great company to do something like that because they're very good at these hyper narrow funds. I mean, look at their big bank ETF, Big B, right, uh, with five, six stocks in it. So I think you can create powerful expressions of a theme with narrow, narrow bunches of stocks. But I think that's what you're doing here if you're trying to get this tight on a theme. Uh, and it's it's going to be a lottery ticket, right? It's, there's a decent chance you're going to get it wrong, and these companies aren't the ones that are going to win. There's a chance you get it right, and you get outsized returns. All right, let me try to quickly squeeze in a few more topics here. So another area with a lot of hype recently, I would say specifically in ETFs, and th this actually goes back to last year, is alternative income strategies. And so yep. I, I think the poster child here is obviously JEPI, right? The uh, JP Morgan Equity Premium Income ETF. And if you look this year, even though uh, that thing is significantly underperforming the S&P 500, it's still taken in like $10.5 billion. It's, it's unbelievable. Uh, so yeah. do you think this category will continue having that type of success? Or is this 2022 hype that's like carried over into this year? Uh, there's a little bit of that, right? So like prior to the sort of fixed income market pulling itself together, uh, you know, in, in the last year and a half or so, uh, this was the only game in town if you were trying to beat inflation and you couldn't actually get decent yields out of your bond portfolio. I think now that we're sort of towards the end of the hiking cycle, I think we can say that. Is that not a crystal ball prediction? I don't think we're over, but I don't think anybody thinks we got 2% more to go either. Uh, now you can invest in bonds again. Now there's real competition for just a 5 to 10% yield. There are lots of ways to get that with different kinds of asset classes now. I think one of the big challenges that these types of equity income products face is that most of them are based on some version of selling volatility, uh, right? You, oh, you know, they're, they're sort of versions of covered call writing strategies to sort of generate income from holding long equity positions. Um, that's a crowded space. I, I actually have a, a webinar coming up uh, with sort of a noted ball trader, Chem Carson yeah. uh, from Kai Volatility and Mike Green from Simplify in a couple weeks, where we're going to dig into what's really going on in the vol market, what's really going on in the options market, which is where most of this income is coming from in these equity income products, uh, and how the dynamics of that options market have really been altered by the prevalence of these kinds of products on the street. So I think this is a, a nuanced 
space. I don't expect uh, these sort of equity income type products to go away. Uh, if anything, they've been a phenomenal proxy for quality. And I think that that's, uh, I think, a, a, a really interesting way to think about it. A lot of advisors told us over the last year or two, they were really trying to focus on getting back to a high quality income generating portfolio with lots of free cash flow in the companies. Uh, that's a pretty standard and I think rational way to be thinking about the markets. Uh, and funds like Jeppy, uh, and, and to some extent things like you're going to have Meb on later talking about SYLD, they've been a great proxy for quality because companies that pay dividends and companies that have available income, however you're extracting it, tend to be pretty healthy. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that with Meb because I actually want to ask him specifically about Jeppy and how that compares to SYLD. So obviously, yeah, different obviously, approaches. Yeah, sure. different approaches, but um, I think some investors want to lump those together because they're both yep. you know income generating and, and focusing on a quality portfolio. Okay, um, two more topics real quick. First, non-transparent active ETFs or semi-transparent ETFs, whatever you want to call them. I feel like these are just dead in the water at this point. Uh, agree, disagree? Uh, I, you know, I, I think of them a little bit like direct indexing. Um, if, if you are an issuer with a problem to solve, uh, all of the structures out there basically do what they say on the tin, whether you're going with Blue Tractor or Nisey's version or Presidian's version. Um, there are now multiple versions of effective ways of shielding your portfolio from prying eyes if that's important to you. I think the reason we think it may be dead, and I, I don't really disagree, is there just haven't been that many launches or that much interest. None of us ever really thought this was an investor demand, right? That, oh, I'm just waiting to get a non-transparent fund and then I'll throw all my money in. Nobody thought that. So this has always been about issuers bringing product to market they otherwise would not have. Uh, and look, some of those products have crushed. Like, I mean, look at T-Chip, right? T-Row Price's blue chip fund. Like that thing's just been on fire, uh, like year to date, I think it's up 34% or something like that, right? So like there are examples of these, some of these funds doing extraordinarily well. Uh, and, you know, for the investors that are into those strategies, they're going to find them. Well, I think you made a comment. This was maybe a year or so ago on this topic where you said something to the effect, if you're, in ma if you're a manager and you're trying to hide your holdings, you don't want that daily transparency, maybe the ETF structure isn't the right one for you. Right. Maybe yeah, you should look I, at some I other structure. Yeah. So I, I just maybe these will continue to survive a, a small amount of assets. I just we're seeing more and more of the largest traditional mutual fund shops come to market using the transparent structure. And yeah. I, and I, I think I, I think that's appropriate. I think it is pretty it's a pretty narrow Venn diagram overlap between really needs to be non-transparent and belongs in an ETF. All right, last topic here, and I love that you called me out on this at the top. You, you knew where I was heading. I, I lied a little bit on the topic of uh, Bitcoin and crypto <laughs> because I have to ask <laughs> you about that. So, look, here, here's, here's what I'll say. We had a huge hype cycle in 2020 and 2021, and then last year was obviously a brutal crypto winner. But here we are. We, we have BlackRock has now filed for a spot Bitcoin ETF. We have big names like uh, Citadel and Fidelity and Schwab backing that new crypto exchange. So EDX, yep. is the hype cycle ramping back up here? Uh, what my hope is, is that every time we go through this cycle, it normalizes a little bit, right? The amplitude comes in and it starts looking a little bit more like a line and a little bit less like a heartbeat. Um, so I, I think that we are probably heading back into a more positive environment for crypto. I'm not sure I would say we're full on the hype cycle. You know my opinions from last week. I'm still pretty negative on whether or not we're going to get a live Bitcoin ETF. Uh, but regardless, 
the real value here in the space won't be unlocked until we have comprehensive crypto legislation. I mean, I think that's just the truth. We might get a Bitcoin and ETF squeezed out of the system, but until we actually create rails for these kinds of assets to do work in the economy effectively, it's it's all kind of just rearranging deck chairs. So there's some hope there. We've got some reintroduction by, by uh, two, uh, two reps, I think, in the last week. Uh, right. So there's some hope that we may get there. I don't think there's any chance that happens in this election cycle. This is sort of a 2024, 2025 style discussion, I think. Uh, and if we actually had real comprehensive crypto legislation by 2026 implemented, I'd be surprised. But that would be my hope. Well, Dave, what a fun list of topics uh, this week. I love looking back on yeah, this. Yeah, grab bag, man. I love it. Yeah. Hey, thank you so much for joining me. Hey, have a great rest of the conversation. That was Dave Nodig, financial futurist at Vetify. On July 24th, Vetify will host a fixed income symposium. Hear from industry leaders, get three hours of CE credits, and learn how to unpack the complex and exciting fixed income space. Register today at etftrends.com slash webcasts slash fixed dash income dash symposium. My next guest is Meb Faber, co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management, who currently offers 12 ETFs, about $1.9 billion in assets. Uh, Meb is now joining me from El Segundo, California, Mev, always a uh, pleasure. Welcome back to the podcast. Great to be here, my friend. So look, look. I was uh, looking back to the last time you joined me, which was right out of the gate last year. And you were around $1.2 billion in assets. And I look now, I mean, you're getting pretty darn close to doubling that in the not too distant future, which it's not like the markets have exactly helped you, right? The S&P 500 is down over that time. And so to start, I'd love to have you just talk a little bit about your recent growth and perhaps what some of the uh, drivers have been. You know, it's never, um, you can never control what the markets are going to do. That's the one guarantee of an investor. We love to make forecasts and have expectations, but I was listening to a good Phil Jackson podcast recently, the old coach of the Bulls and Lakers, and he said, you know, he used to tell his players, you got to play through the opponent and play through the referees. And I think that's a good analogy for markets. You can't really control what opportunity set you're going to get. You know, if we started in 2000, man, that was a tough uh, equity decade for investors. If we started uh, a decade later, after the financial crisis, it's been one of the best decades in history. We were actually looking recently, we, we posted a chart on Twitter about U.S. stocks going back to 1900 and the sharp ratio uh, for listeners, risk-adjusted returns of U.S. stocks. You know, asset classes are normally around 0. 0.2, 0.3, um, and they've been over one at a few periods in time, uh, the Roaring Twenties the nifty 50s, the internet bubble, whatever we call the most recent one, the COVID bubble, really only four periods. Um, so this last decade has been an astonishing, wonderful period. But then 
we had a little jiggle of the bear market last year, you know, a, a really rough year for 6040. Um, we're off to the races again this year, but we're just happy to have survived. We tweeted out, we said, you know, half of all funds disappear over the course of a decade uh, in public markets, whether merged or usually shut down for performance. Um, we're happy. Uh, we considered it a great compliment just to still be here. Yeah, and I'd love to have you talk a little bit of, uh, more about that because you, you mentioned charts that you've tweeted out. So I saw another chart you tweeted out a couple of months ago, and I, I've got to tell you, I love this. So the chart showed your uh, firm's assets uh, under management growth, but then you added in a bunch of uh, derogatory comments that have been thrown at you over the years, right? People doubting you, uh, taking jabs at your investment approach, those sorts of things. And I'm, I'm just curious, we all know how tough the ETF Terradome is, right? It's not only tough to survive, but I, I feel like it's even tougher to thrive, which you've clearly done. So can you talk about how you've kept your eyes on the ball over the the, the, the years and continued pushing forward despite the haters and, and the challenges? Sure. I just feel like it's a good reminder for anyone operating in the ETF space and also for investors just to see the type of conviction behind the uh, products out there. Well, growing up in the age of, of social media, uh, certainly, as an entrepreneur, you have to have a thick skin. You know, we've seen all the struggles of mental health uh, this generation is, is having with growing up in this world. And I, I think our approach has always been <clears throat> one to try and have a sense of humor about it. We can't always. And, and one of the, I don't want to say hacks, but one of the things we've done that I think has actually been very beneficial <laughs> over the years is anytime someone says something particularly nasty uh, angry, awful, uh, to me personally or to our company or one of our funds, we simply take it and we throw it in a Google Docs, right? And it has a very nice sort of zen refreshing ability to uh, kind of distance yourself from it. You take it, you put it, you put it away. Well, that doc is now pages and pages and pages. And <laughs> you've seen some of the good ones that says this guy is a tool. Nobody cares about your insecurities. Watching you on CNBC, dude, lose, lose the ego. Uh, this interviewer is horrible. I wouldn't invest in Cambria. Tells me it's a scam. What's a meb in favor? I mean, just on and on and on, right? Like, and some of them are actually kind of funny in retrospect. Um, one of them said uh, on CNBC, "Have fun losing your money and your hairline." But uh, <laughs> but at the time, you know, a lot of these things can you know feel uh, really painful, particularly when you're young. I mean, we started this in my twenties and. Um, a lot of these actually really hurt. If you send, I sent my book out, my very first book, to a number of very famous investors that I would consider to be icons and mentors. And some of them, one wrote back, this book is totally worthless. <laughs> so, um, you know, it, it, uh, in retrospect, it, it, it's funny. At the time, maybe not so much, but we feel, you know, to all the young entrepreneurs out there, you have to have a naive optimism to be an entrepreneur. We all know that most fail, um, but particularly in the asset management business, you know, I tell a lot of my friends that the biggest mistake universally everyone makes when this circles back to the beginning of the conversation is, you know, you don't get to choose what the market's going to give you. And so you better prepare to have the staying power of a minimum of five years, but really 10, because uh, most of our friends in the ETF business see the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow they only give themselves a year or two, and they expect all of a sudden that magically they're going to raise hundreds of millions of dollars. And we know that's not always the case, or rarely is it the case, because you got uh, the big three shops with T's after their name, you know, trillions, not billions or millions. 
and they have a lot of economies of scale. So the Terradome, as you call it, is you know getting more and more competitive every day, but uh, we still think there's a lot of fun and interesting ideas out there. All right. So you mentioned um, having conviction or staying power for you know five. Uh, ideally 10 plus years. And I think this is a good jumping off point to talk about your flagship ETF. It's your most popular ETF, which is the Cambria Shareholder Yield ETF, ticker SYLD. That just crossed over its 10-year anniversary. So congratulations on that. Um, I, I guess first explain what a shareholder yield strategy is, and then just give us some color around the ETF itself. Yeah, shareholder yield is a concept that it's really hard for me to understand how someone could be presented with the evidence and philosophy, the old matrix red pill, and still see the world in the same way. Um, So we all know that there's rarely at times in markets, but it happens where something structurally changes where you can then say this time is different. Usually it's just people that don't have a long enough appreciation for history. Um, You know, get surprised that Russia's market shut down. Well, that happened before. In the, in the 20th century, and on and on and on, right? But there are some very real structural changes, and one that happened in the U.S. is that uh, the acceleration of companies buying back stock. So really, starting in the 1980s, but accelerating to the point in the 1990s where companies now, every given year since the late 90s, buy back more stock than they do pay out in cash dividends. And this topic, for, for whatever reason, uh, just sort of short wires people's brains about the topic of buybacks. Because if you could go back 50 years, I would tell the person who said these are called stock buybacks, and say, no, no, just call them tax-efficient dividends or flexible dividends. Don't call them buybacks. Because there's so much misinformation. We, we've written entire pieces uh, on, we have one called FAQ on buybacks on our blog about this topic because there's so much uh, confusion and people using it, in some cases, they just don't know better. In some cases, like a lot of our politicians, they do know better, and they use it for their own gain. But um, such things like buybacks used to be illegal. Well, that's never been true. That's, that's false. And so, anyway, um, if you look at how a company can use their cash, they can only do five things. They can reinvest in the business. That's the sexy one everyone talks about. They can pay down debt if they have any. They can merge or do acquisitions. And then they can return the cash to shareholders through either dividends or buybacks. And dividends and buybacks, Finance 101, are the exact same thing that the company's trading at intrinsic value. If it's cheaper, it's way better to do buybacks. Buffett gets it. Nobody gets it better than Buffett. He talks all the time in shareholder letters about buybacks and dividends. Anyway, the whole point being is that if you only focus on dividends, like the 500-plus funds out there in the equity markets in the U.S. do, you're ignoring over half of how companies distribute their cash, and that makes no sense. So over a decade ago, we wrote a book called Shareholder Yield. We didn't invent the, t- the, the phrase or the concept. You know, really, it goes back 30 years to the point of value investing, Ben Graham, but it's more of a modern version. If you look at the factor-based concept, shareholder yield historically, on a, on a hypothetical back-tested basis, every dividend strategy you can come up with. You cannot come up with a dividend strategy that beats shareholder yield. But a lot of people will say, Meb, anybody can come up with a back test, and I agree with that. Um, and when we wrote the book 10 years ago, uh, people used to derogatory call me the king of back tests, right? But I, I, I would take it as a compliment. I don't think they meant it that way. But um, anyway, all that matters, of course, is, is real-time performance and 
you know, this fund on a senior track record is now the number one fund in the category, right? It's in this category, it's beaten every dividend income fund. Um, so, and then, then there's some sister funds. There's a foreign shareholder yield. There's an emerging shareholder yield. We're going to launch small cap and some other variants. So it, it's wonderful to see that it's had great performance. Uh, SYOD is double-digit performance since uh, inception. The odd thing to me is maybe we just haven't done a good job of telling the narrative or marketing, but it, it hasn't been something that's really resonated across the ETF landscape. If we know anything about the Teradome, it's the, the big three love to copy whatever comes out that's hot, right? You'll see hundreds of AI funds or disruption funds or whatever the ESG topic of the day is. There's not any other shareholder yield ETF, so I scratch my head. Either that's a really good thing because <laughs> we're the only ones there, or it's a bad thing that Meb's crazy um, and the rest of the world doesn't get it. But to me, it's a strange topic that you can't go back to dividend and income investing on its own once you understand how uh, companies actually use their cash flows. Well, let me ask you this to, to your point on maybe the investor interests around SYLD. As I think about some of the popular dividend-oriented ETFs out there. Take an ETF like SEHD, the Schwab U.S. Dividend Equity ETF. And I know that's absolutely not a perfect comparison strategy-wise. I just chose that ETF because it is one of the more popular dividend-oriented ETFs out there. And there's a quality screen on it, which I know SYLD, you are looking at valuations. Um, SY, or SEHD is you know for sustainable dividend payers. And so I, I guess I'm just curious, how would you compare SYLD to an ETF like that? All right. This is too... Uh, I don't think you meant to give me a softball. Give <laughs> one. Um, you know, there's two... When we talk about the opportunity set, as an investor tape, we say it's the best time ever to be an investor. You can buy the global market portfolio for essentially 0%. Unbelievable, right? That's that's the, the fantastic. Now, the, the problem is if you move away from market cap weighting, you want to be concentrated, weird, and different. If you're going to pay someone 50 basis points or something, we charge 59 on this fund, you better be getting something for that additional cost. Forget the 1%, 1.5%, 2% that some funds still charge. The problem with a lot of the big funds, and SDHD, Schwab, we love our friends at Schwab, is a good example. This fund's got $50 billion, okay? You have $50 billion. You cannot concentrate to an extent that a fund that has less than a billion dollars can. Um, and why does that matter? You end up, the long history of markets show these giant funds end up looking like closet indexes. And if you look at the actual underlying holdings, and one of the biggest arguments for shareholder yield today, and forget the past 10 years going forward, is you can go into Morningstar, type in any symbol, SCHD, SYLD, and it'll give you a snapshot of the value composition, price to earnings, price to cash flow, earnings percent, historical earnings yield, on and on and on. And a fund like SCHD, look, its PE ratio is 13.6. Not bad, right? You know, the, the category average is in line. The problem with that is, is that if you're going to do value, do value, right? You want to be concentrated in value. You don't want just like the S&P 500 with a slight value tilt. And so if you look at something like SYLD, it's got a, a single-digit P.E. ratio. And all these metrics are going to end up being much more concentrated because it can be. Now, you have me back on the show in five years, and SYLD is a $50 billion fund. You're going to say, Meb, you remember... 
when we talked, uh, you said that it's hard to concentrate at that point. I'll say you're right. Um, and one other comment about, you know, the, the opportunity set. We say it's the best time for value in, in probably 40 years, if not the past 100 years, if you're looking at value as cheap versus expensive, uh, both within the U.S. and across the pond, too. Um, and we're really excited about that. We think uh, we saw a, a shimmer of it last year, but we're getting a bounce this year. But it's, you know, most of the big quants, AQR, research affiliates, CMO, on and on and on, kind of talk about this opportunity set. But the reason that people still stick with dividends is they have an amazing brand. We're talking Coca-Cola, Pepsi, you do the taste test, everyone prefers Pepsi. But guess what? Everyone still buys Coca-Cola because they have a brand and dividends concept of getting paid passive income, no one's going to give up that. And so um, the way we like to phrase on the shareholder yield is you're getting a hidden yield. A lot of these style strategies ends up in low double-digit total shareholder year. In the U.S., it's mostly buybacks. Foreign and emerging, it's, it's closer to half and half. So the dividend yields look much bigger than foreign emerging on the shareholder yield funds because the culture is still um, much different in, in foreign and emerging countries countries than it is in the U.S. So it's changing. Meb, just a few minutes left here. This may be another softball, but what about the rise of some of these uh, covered call strategies? So I was just talking with uh, Vetify's Dave Nottig about this and the proliferation of these strategies. Uh, obviously, the poster child here is JEPI, right? The J.P. Morgan Equity Premium Income ETF. And again, you look at that portfolio, it is a, a bit more defensive or quality tilted. Uh, they do have that options overlay. So how do you think investors should should think about an ETF like that compared to SYLD? You know, the challenge, we said earlier, it's the best time ever to be an investor. It's also one of the harder times. There's over 10,000 funds out there. And to us, is it's like an unlimited buffet. And we would challenge investors to read past the headline. You know, I'm sure most of us, they read the headline of a fund and how many actually read the perspectives. I know Dave does. He, he reads more uh, more perspectives than probably anyone in the world. So but most investors don't. And so the, the challenge of your buffet is there's so many choices out there. And, you know, for us, the biggest challenge is, look, find an investing approach that fits you. There's a whole of the Venn diagram on the left side. There's millions of choices that are wonderful and approaches but also on the flip side, there's probably 10 times as many that are awful. Um, coming up with a portfolio that works is, I think, the, the key at the end of the day. Uh, we have a few non-consensus views. We believe an investor should be global, which means you know almost half their equity assets should be ex-U.S. We think uh, investors should have a real asset focus. And then lastly, we think investors should have trend-following exposure. In sort of, in, you know, the, those three big parts of the stool, most investors don't express. Then you start to get into all the sort of other derivative and option overlays. You know, I, the challenge with a lot of them is they end up giving you a blend of stocks and bonds. And I'm not trying to, to give these funds a hard time, talk down about them, but, um, you know, a number of them, if you just try to simulate what this is actually doing, uh, it ends up, it's, it's a mix the smoothie mix of the other two choice sets already on the menu um but hey they package it in a different way and people like it so you know i'm not going to complain but to me there's bigger bigger issues out there move away from the really expensive market cap weight in the u.s so shareholder yield could be one uh move into the value opportunity in foreign equities and of course add real assets and trend 
I think that'll get you uh, to where most people want to be. In terms of uh, moving towards a more global approach, and only about a minute left here, I'm leaving you a minute for what I know is one of your favorite topics. But every time you join me, we do end up touching on valuations. And I'm just curious what you're seeing on that front right now, because if I look here in the U.S., the uh, forward P on the S&P 500 is over 19. That's above the 25-year average. So I would say U.S. stocks certainly aren't uh, cheap. But then if you look at broader developed international and emerging market stocks, those valuations do look much more attractive. Again, not investment advice. Do your own homework, uh, listeners. But how do you think investors should read that? Because that's been the case for a while now. If you look at the long history of global stock markets, this takes it back to the very beginning of our discussion. A sharp ratio over one is not normal. You know, U.S. stocks on average, I mean, any asset class on average has a sharp ratio around 0.2 or 0.3. And if you look at all of those four periods that I mentioned in the beginning, the roaring 20s, nifty 50s, internet bubble, and COVID era, um, and the last one is TBD, but the, the first three, it's like a Matterhorn, Matterhorn ski slope on the other side. You had terrible returns in the decade that followed. And that's not a guarantee you what's going to happen in the next 10 years. But usually, this is a very technical term, good times follow the bad and vice versa. And we've had some amazing times in U.S. stocks over the past 13 years. Um, personally, I think this summer has a little summer 2000 vibes to it. Uh, but I'm a trend follower at the end of the day, so we're, we're going to go where the, the market takes us. But back in the summer of 2000, the NASDAQ was also up 30% before eventually falling out of bed and going down well, was it 85 almost 90%. So um, we think if you hang out in the value stocks, uh, that'll, that'll protect you. That's true both in the U.S., but particularly true elsewhere. And for the long history of U.S. versus foreign, it's been a coin flip. I love when my friends say, no, no, you got to invest all your money in the U.S. because it's been the best market. I think, well, no, actually, Australia's been better. South Africa's been better. Uh, but we think diversifying globally, of course, is, uh, makes a lot of sense. Well, Meb, uh, excellent perspective as always. Congratulations on all the uh, success. I love seeing it. Thank you for joining me this week. We'll do it again at the 20-year anniversary uh, and uh, hopefully a lot of uh, years in between. That's right. I'm going to go back and, uh, and pin you down on your, your call in five years here on where we're at. But <laughs> that was uh, Meb Favor, co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. At Principal Asset Management, taking an active approach to investing means looking at asset management through a different lens, one with a clear focus on our clients. Consider principal ETFs, actively managed ETF strategies built with portfolio construction in mind. For more information and to explore the full range of principal ETF options, visit principalam.com forward slash ETF. Copyright 2023 Principal Global Investors. Alps Distributors, Inc. is a distributor of the principal ETFs. Alps Distributors, Inc. and the principal funds are not affiliated. I'm now joined by Todd Sohn, ETF and technical strategist at Strategas. And I've got to tell you, 
Todd has very quickly become one of my favorite ETF analysts out there. He's producing some of the best charts and research uh, you're going to find covering the uh, ETF space. And he's now on the line with me from New York. Todd, so great to finally have you on the podcast. Hey, Nate, thanks so much for the very kind words. I, I appreciate that and I'm very happy to join you uh, today. All right, so I'm looking forward to this. We're going to go through the 10 ETFs you're using to track market conditions in the second half of the year. But before we do that, since you haven't been on the podcast before, I'd love to have you tell everyone just a little more about Strategas, uh, your role there, and I'd love to hear more about how you actually got involved with uh, ETFs to begin with. Yeah, yeah, sure. So, okay, um, Strategas is split into two businesses, I, I would say. We have, on one hand, our institutional research, uh, which has been around since 2006, and I help lead our ETF research there. And then on the other side, we also have our asset management arm, where we house two actively managed ETFs that have been around for about a year and a half. And you know how I got into ETFs, uh, if I rewind the clock, my, my foundation for market analysis is uh, through more of a technical backdrop, and, and Meb was just talking about trend following, of which I um, like to subscribe to. Um, but ETFs have always been interesting to me. Uh, used to publish a lot internally, and then a few years ago, we decided, hey, let's turn this into a client product to give them more uh, important charts, information on the growing ETF business, which uh, industry, which, which I think you and I can both speak to. And and I find that ETFs offer a great lens into the psychology of markets, right? They're great tools for clients and to get exposures across the whole world. But ETFs really allow us to say, okay, where are investors allocating their money right, via flows? Where are any sort of extremes maybe developing in certain asset classes or sectors that by their performance? And maybe there's some uh, places we can find that are unloved based on either outflows or trading volumes and whatnot. So I just find there to be a lot of great information on market conditions, uh, as well as investing for the long run, right? ETFs allow us to do so many different things. And I think that's really what's pushed me in this direction. It's um, you know, just a great industry for uh, numerical analysis, as well as uh, identifying all sorts of different products, kind of like a grocery store. I think that's always the best analogy. You walk in there and you have to check out all the labels of uh, what's going on on the shelves. And I alluded to this, you do publish a weekly ETF research report. Can anyone subscribe to that or do you need to be a client of Strategas? So I, ideally, you can be a, uh, you, we would love to have a relationship with uh, <laughs> listeners as a client, but you know, I'm happy to pass along some notes to whoever's interested, feel free to look me up on you know, LinkedIn, Twitter, whatever it is, shoot me a message, and I'm happy to continue the conversation. Ideally, we go for institutions, or if you're interested in our ETFs, um, that's another route we can always figure out. Um, but I, you know, that's always one of the hurdles when, when dealing with this type of research is um, the, the swath of clients, I guess, that we can cater to. Okay, so in the report you published last week, you provided a list of 10 ETFs that you're using to track market conditions in the second half of the year. And so what I'd like to do is I'll tee up the ETF. You tell us why you think uh, it's important to keep an eye on. I may add a little bit of color as well, and we'll just uh, work our way rapid fire down the list. That sound good? Yeah, let's let's do it. All right, here, here we go. So first up is the Invesco S&P 500 Equal Weight ETF, ticker RSP. Why do you have that on the list? 
okay, so there's, there's been a ton of consternation from our clients, from the media, over the impact of the 10 largest, even the five largest names within the S&P 500, right? They're 24% of the SPY. They've accounted for almost 80% of the year-to-date gain, right? That, that's how market cap-weighted indices work. When the biggest names go up the most, they're going to have an outsized influence. But if you're worried about that, and you're worried about a tech bubble 2000-type scenario again, keep an eye on the RSP. And I also think you're seeing such major flows into RSP that investors are now embracing the equal weight alternative, right? They, they got their market cap growth um, exposure. Now they need to uh, perhaps tone it down a little bit and go with the RSP. So this is a great gauge for market participation and underlying health. Yeah, and to your point on flows, over $5 billion uh, inflows year-to-date. Most of that has come over the past month or so. And I'll, I'll add two other stats here. So w- one is from yourself, which is that if you look at the first half of the year, the top 10 names in the S&P 500 mm-hmm. contributed 77% to, to that total yeah. uh, S&P return, just showing you the top heaviness. The other stat I have comes courtesy of Bank of America. They noted that only 25% of stocks outperformed the S&P 500 in the first six months of the year. That was the uh, narrowest first half breath ever. So you can see why, uh, you know, the contrarian investor may be looking at an ETF like RSP, which I I guess gets to the second ETF on the list, which is the Vanguard Extended Market ETF, ticker VXF. I'm assuming similar reasons here as with RSP. Yeah, I like this because it's it's a little more under the radar and it's all non S&P 500 companies. So you're getting small caps, mid caps, even large caps that haven't made it into the S&P because they don't fit the, the filters yet. It's a really interesting fund that I, I find not many people know about. But again, another reflection of market participation. If you wanted to play some sort of catch up to the S&P, you know, this would be the way to go. We'll see if that works out. Um, but the, the way I would, and going back to your point on Bank of America, this, these two funds and what the QQQ and SPY have done represent what I would call the, the passive dream and the active nightmare. You know, active man, it's hard to outperform when Apple's 8% of the fund and going up you know, double or whatever it was in the first half. So um, to, to your point, the Bank of America's point, extremely difficult for uh, active folks out there. And to what you were saying on VXF in terms of maybe not being on investors' radars, uh, that only has about $750 million in year-to-date inflows. It is up 13%. To your point, this holds everything outside of the S&P 500, nearly 3,700 holdings. So I do wonder if we'll start to see an uptick in interest uh, in this in the back half of the year. All right, next I have the Fidelity Stocks for Inflation ETF, ticker FCPI. I like how you're digging a bit deeper into the ETF toolbox here. This is obviously an inflation play. Anything else you would add on that one? I, I would just use it for relative performance. If this starts to perk up, and there's other inflation ETFs out there, maybe they're constructed better, maybe not. But if this starts to perk up again, maybe that's the market suggesting that the Fed is not quite done yet, right? We can we can parlay this back into rate hikes, and if inflation is going to become unanchored, um, I would suspect this basket to outperform. And if it continues to underperform, then maybe the inflation argument is, is, is still going away. So that's kind of my gauge here for a very important topic uh, for markets over the next 6 to 12 months. All right, another ETF that I'm guessing is probably not on a, a lot of investors' radars, the First Trust NASDAQ ABA Community Bank ETF, ticker QABA. Uh, w- w- what are you tracking here? 
Yeah, so it, usually it's KRE that gets the attention. I right. want to go a little deeper. Um, uh, the QABA is another gauge for banking stress. And if rates were to make another leg higher here, I, sus- I would suspect you'll start to see more headlines about bank portfolio issues and whatnot. And this, this ETF, the, the largest name in it is about $6 billion in market cap, so not big. And it goes all the way down to $200 million in market cap for some of the banks in there. So you're getting the real regional of regional. I think KRE may have some of the more larger, you know, uh, super regional type names in there. So um, I like this as, again, as you mentioned, digging down into the toolbox. And if you're just trying to wonder how banks are acting in this type of environment, this is another good read for it. And interestingly, QABA, that's down about 23% year-to-date versus uh, down 28% for KRE. Thought that was interesting. Um, All right, the fifth ETF you're tracking, another Invesco equal weight product, the Invesco S&P 500 equal weight consumer discretionary ETF, ticker RSPD, which, by the way, did you see Invesco recently rebranded all the ticker symbols on those uh, equal weight sector products? They all now begin with RSP. I thought that was a good idea. Yeah, great example of ETF marketing. Yeah, some of the some of the old uh, equal weight tickers were a little confusing, at least to me. And they finally rebranded them. They actually make a little bit more sense, they're easier to remember on my end. Um, so well done to the Invesco team for at least uh, making things a little more cohesive. And with RSPD, if if you compare RSPD to XOI, XOI is so heavily concentrated to Amazon and Tesla. It's almost forty over forty percent of the fund. And so if I just want to get a, a, a read on the consumer, right, all the smaller retailers, the home builders, the household durable type names, this is my, my go-to. And if you're really concerned about the economy, the consumer portion of it, then this fund uh, should weaken. And it's doing the opposite of that right now, which I like uh, for those who are more tactical, you know, tactical players here in the market. So again, another great tool offered by ETFs to say, okay, how is the consumer? We can talk about consumer savings maybe depleting over the next year or whatnot. Well, if this fund is still acting well, then you know, ignore that, I would say. Right? Don't, don't get too stressed out about what's going on with consumer data if this thing is, is still performing very well. All right, back half of this list, we're going to have to go quick here. We're going to have to go rapid fire. So I have the Renaissance cool. IPO ETF, ticker IPO, which is funny. I hadn't talked about that ETF in who knows how long, and it's now come up twice <laughs> in this podcast. But what are you watching for on IPO? IPOs, are there more in the pipeline? We had COVID the other week. This is a risk and liquidity barometer. I think if IPOs are outperforming, the market is risk-seeking. All right. Next is the Roundhill Generative AI and Technology ETF, ticker chat. I also talked about that earlier. Just launched in May, already over $80 million in assets. It's up about 11% since its debut. I think I know why you're tracking this one, but uh, give me the detail here. Yeah, I mean, AI is all the rage right now. This is uh, a great look to see if the demand for AI is real or is it transitory. And I like that Roundhill, great team there, uh, is actively managing this. That's a differentiated product compared to the rest of the AI ETFs that are available on the market. All right, next ETF, again, highlighting your ability to uh, dig deep in the ETF toolbox, the Double Line Commercial Real Estate ETF, ticker DCMV. Uh, that just launched this year as well. And look, I think a lot of investors are are keeping their eye on commercial real estate, right? It's always a pretty good gauge on the economy. Uh, This ETF is up about 1% since its launch in March. What are your quick thoughts on DCMB? I I mean, as being someone who is in New York City, I'm hearing about commercial real estate every day with our office vacancies. Um, This, A, is a great 
tracker for if there's any other fallout, you know, because you'll see the bonds weaken. And B, it's an exotic exposure, and it's with an active proven manager and double line. So I think if you're not so worried about commercial real estate fallout, this would be a great way to get that exotic exposure and differentiate your portfolio a little bit. All right, two more ETFs here. First is the PIMCO 25-plus year zero-coupon U.S. Treasury ETF, ticker ZROZ, Z-R-O-Z. Uh, clearly a duration play. This thing has an effective duration of about 26 years. And, and listen to this, which I know you're aware, for taking on that duration risk, your prize is a 3.6% 30-day <laughs> SEC yield. So how do you like that uh, risk-reward? This is purely a yields collapse play. <laughs> now, I'm not saying that's going to happen, but there are some folks out there who may feel that way. This will give you the most bang for your buck if you were to get yields to collapse because of a recession or some sort of economic event because of the, the duration you mentioned. I think it's one of the highest on the market, if not the highest out there. So purely a duration, a, a price appreciation play rather than a uh, total return play. Yeah, and that has about $200 million in inflows year-to-date. But, you know, I would lump this in. You're right. I think it has the highest duration, if not, you know, right there. But I think of an ETF like TLT, which has been at the top of the ETF inflow leaderboard all year long. So you clearly have a uh, decent chunk of investors wanting to take on that duration risk, I think, to, to what you're saying primarily as a, uh, a recession hedge. Um, okay, last ETF you're using to track second-half market conditions is the Bond Blocks Triple C Rated High Yield Corporate Bond ETF, ticker XCCCC. Uh, explain your selection of this one. And I, along with XCCC, you have XB and XBB, uh, maybe VB, from Bond Blocks. Great corporate bond suite. They're really splicing and dicing the fixed income space, which is fantastic. And this, in a way, goes along with ZROZ and DCMB. It's just a gauge for default risk, for credit weakness, because if that starts to become an issue, you'll start to see eventually leak into equities and the backdrop worsens. But if this is, that is not an issue, then I think the overall back end of the year is going to be uh, pretty healthy. But again, another tool for investors to use just to gauge what's going on and inform their own clients. Um, that's what these funds allow us to do to reach these hard-to-reach spaces. Uh, and provide pretty con- clear and concise updates uh, for their internal firms or for their own clients. Well, Todd, excellent job. We made it uh, rapid fire. So, so good work <laughs> on that. Uh, really enjoyed having you on the podcast. We'll definitely have to do this again. Listeners, again, can't more highly recommend checking out Strategus's uh, research and, and the ETF coverage that Todd has. I, I, I look at it every week, love it. But Todd, thank you for joining me. I appreciate it, Nate. My pleasure. That was Todd Sohn, ETF and technical strategist at Strategas. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. I want to thank one of our sponsors, Motley Fool Asset Management. If you would like to learn more about Motley Fool Asset Management's ETFs, you can visit fooletfs.com slash ETF Prime. Next week, I will be joined in studio by Fortune Financial's Lawrence Hamtill, And special guest, Ramp Capital, who, if you're out on Twitter, you should know who that is. We're going to talk ETFs, uh, financial markets, social media. We'll just see where the conversation takes us. Until then, have a great week, everyone.